Uh, we're reading today from uh, Psalm 20, the entire chapter, and I encourage you to read on the screen, uh, perhaps your own Bible, or be happy to listen for God's voice in the Word, in His Word. May the Lord answer you when you are in distress. May the name of the God of Jacob protect you. May he send you help from the sanctuary and grant you support from Zion. May he remember all your sacrifices and accept your burnt offerings. May he give you the desire of your heart and make all your plans succeed. May we shout for joy over your victory and lift up your banners in the name of our God. May the Lord grant all your requests. Now this I know. The Lord gives victory to his anointed. He answers him from his heavenly sanctuary with the victorious power of his right hand. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. They are brought to their knees and fall, but we rise and stand firm. Lord, give victory to the king. Answer us when we call. Amen. Thanks, David. Uh, good morning. Uh, my name's Tim, if I haven't met you uh, yet. My, I'm one of the elders here as well. Uh, I normally go to the evening service, but it's a real pleasure uh, to be joining with you this morning uh, and looking at God's Word. Um, well, we've actually finally arrived for what many Australians is the biggest weekend of the year. Yes, that's right. In case you've been living under a rock or missed it, it's grand final weekend. Now, I realise probably for about half of you, it's like, meh, who cares? Um, but for those who are invested in their team, who've actually put their hopes and dreams into this season, this is the culmination of a year's hard work, isn't it? But it's actually the weekend where one tribe of supporters will go home in celebration, in victory, and the other will leave in distress and despair. See, you only actually have to look at the contrasting faces and the body language of winners and losers to see the joy and celebration that's attached to victory and the despair that comes with defeat. Have a look at the contrast between the Matilda's response at the recent World Cup when you compare the despair of defeat and the joy of victory. It's striking, isn't it? And although we can experience the highs and devastating lows that watching sport can bring, we really have to acknowledge, don't we, that sport is absolutely trivial when it comes to life. Because unfortunately, the reality of life is that distress, despair and trouble can come on us over us at any time. You know, that knowledge that we're in a situation that we just can't see a way out of. That feeling is so paralyzing. It may be a relationship that's breaking down. We just can't seem to get right. Maybe an issue with our health that just feels like it's snowballing out of control. There may be stuff going on with our kids that no matter what we say or do makes any difference. Perhaps it's financial stress for you, not knowing how you're going to pay that next bill. 
Perhaps it's loneliness, that feeling that you're just not connected with anyone. Or even worse, perhaps it's the death of somebody close to you, that overwhelming sadness that you feel, being not being able to see them again. I think we all go through periods of distress, and I think it's actually much more common than we acknowledge. Because I think as Aussies, we're really good at putting on a brave face, not letting others get too close to us, not letting others know how much we're struggling with things. How do we respond in these times of troubles? How do we think well? How do we respond appropriately when we're in trouble? We know from the Psalms that David often felt this way. He was regularly pursued and surrounded by his enemies to the point where he felt like there was no escape. The situation felt hopeless and he's forced to call out to God for rescue, for salvation. He pleads to God for victory. And I think Psalm 20 helps us understand the way in which God responds when we call out to him for help. So why don't we um, just open our time in prayer uh, and commit this time to God. Father, thanks for the Psalms. Thank you that they help us express our emotions in a really helpful way. Thank you that through them you teach us how to respond to the troubles of life. And Father, we pray that we would have hearts that are open to hear what you are saying through your word to us today. Amen. So as, if you've got a Bible, keep it open. Uh, keep looking at, uh, at the Psalm 20 as we work our way through it. And as we read through Psalm 20, we're going to see a psalm that David has written for Israel, to help Israel pray for him, to help Israel pray for their king. And I think we see this if you look at who is speaking at each part of the psalm. If you look at verses 1 to 5, you actually see the people praying for their king. If you look at verses 6 to 8, you're actually going to see the king responding and leading the people in prayer. And then verse 9 is like a summary of the whole psalm where the, the king and the people join together in one voice. Let's just take a moment just to reflect on that fact before we move into the psalm. This is Israel. This is David, Israel's great king. He's a man who has great faith, great trust in God's promises. But you notice he sees the benefit of enlisting the whole of Israel's support in prayer for him. He wants his people to be praying for him, to be calling out to God, to be pleading with God to provide rescue, to provide the victory that they desire. And the big question that I want to ask today as we look at Psalm 20 is, why can we have confidence that God will answer us when we are in trouble? And I think we're going to see two things from Psalm 20. One is that because God cares for his people, but secondly, that God provides victory through his anointed one. And then I want to spend the rest of the time together thinking through what are the implications for us as Christians today? So the first thing we're actually going to see in Psalm in verses 1 through to 5 is that God cares for his people. We see in these verses the people praying for their king. They pray that when David is in distress, that God would answer and God would provide victory. Let me read to you from verses one, verse 1. May the Lord answer you when you're in distress. May the name of the God of Jacob protect you. 
May he send you help from the sanctuary and grant you support from Zion. May he remember all your sacrifices and accept your burnt offerings. What's the basis of their appeal? Why do Israel have confidence that God will answer them? Well, David and Israel's prayer to God is based on three aspects of God's care for his people. See, in verse 1, we see that God has a special relationship with Israel. The people call on the name of the God of Jacob. Jacob being the father of those 12 tribes of Israel. The people are remembering that God in the past has acted to rescue Israel as he delivers them out of slavery from Egypt. See, this is key to what it means to be Israel. God has chosen the nation Israel to be his treasured possession. They're valuable to him. They're dearly loved by him. They, and as his treasured possession, he promises to care for them, to protect them. He's rescued them in the past. And this gives David, this gives Israel confidence that the Lord God will continue to do this in the future. In verse 2, we see that God also dwells with his people. The people here ask that God would send help from the sanctuary. That is the tabernacle, the place where God has established to dwell amongst his people in Israel in glory and power. See, when God delivers Israel out of slavery from Egypt, he says to Moses in Exodus 29, then I will dwell among the Israelites and I will be their God. They will know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of Egypt so that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. This is hugely significant. This is Yahweh, the personal God, the God of Israel. He's not some far off God who rarely takes an interest in what is happening on earth. God is not a God like the gods of the nations who's distant and, and, and uncaring. No, this is the creator of the universe who is dwelling, who is living amongst his people. And if the Lord God dwells with his people, then surely he's going to act to deliver them. Surely he's going to act to provide victory. But the third thing Israel's confidence is based on is actually God's promises to his people. The people in verse 3 ask God to remember David's sacrifices and accept his burnt offerings. That is, they're asking God to remember his covenant, that the promises that God has made to his people. See, David here claims that he has been righteous in upholding his part of the, um, the agreement. He's kept the agreement in terms of offering sacrifices and burnt offerings. And therefore, he's confident that to call on God for God to remember his promises and act to bring salvation. This picture of God in verses 1 to 3 reminds me of a time we visited a property in Dubbo a few years back. Um, the property was a sheep property. They raised sheep, but they had a problem with foxes and lambs. Oh, so that was, sorry, they had a fo yeah, foxes and wild dogs attacking the lambs. So the farmer went out and bought a llama, and that llama actually became the protector of the flock. All night long, the llama would stand guard over that flock, maintaining vigilance, seeking out and trampling any dog or fox that dared to attack the threaten the flock. So in this really strange cross-species relationship, the llama demonstrated great care, great protection for the flock. 
See, whilst that llama was dwelling with the flock, they were safe. They'd have victory over any foxes or dogs that threatened them. They would be able to live in peace. I think this comes close to the picture of God that we see in verses 1 to 3. Whilst Israel remain his people, he will care for them. He will protect them. He will lead them to victory. And that is why Israel have confidence that when they call out to God, he will, he will respond. He will help them. But what is it that the people pray for? Well, they pray for David, don't they? They pray in verse 4, may he give you the desire of your heart. May he make all your plans succeed. May the Lord grant all your requests. But they also pray for themselves that they would be able to share in David's success. May we shout for joy over your victory. Lift our banners in the name of our God. <clears throat> when thinking about this prayer, I think it's important to note that it's not an open invitation that God will grant anything that David wants. The prayer that God would grant that David the desires of his heart, that he will make David's plan succeed is made in the context of David loving God, David seeking to fulfill God's commands to drive the nations from the promised land, to rid the promised land of all the evil that was there. See, David has this great desire to serve God and he's confident that he's doing the will of God, that his plans, that the desires of his heart align with God's plans and God's desires. So in, just in terms of thinking through the application of this section for us, I want to ask the question, how do we respond when our plans are frustrated? We may have the best intentions to serve God, to be serving our community, to be doing the right thing. But so often these plans are frustrated, aren't they? Whether it be from opposition from other people, whether it be our own poor health, whether it be just the stresses of life that overwhelm us, how do we respond in times of trouble when we despair of our situation? I think Psalm 20 points us to two simple things that we can do. Firstly, just as David enlisted the nation of Israel to pray for him, how good is it that we can ask other Christians to pray on our behalf? See, friends, God has given us a community of believers because we're all in this together. And it gets exhausting trying to deal with that stuff by yourself. If you don't, have, um, if you don't feel like you have other people who you can ask to pray for, can I plead with you to take this opportunity to get connected with a home group? Home groups are probably the key way at WBC that we support each other both through reading God's word together, by learning God uh, from God's word, but also by sharing our lives and by praying for each other. But secondly, when our plans are frustrated, we should take out the opportunity to examine ourselves, to look at our motives and to pray to ensure that our desires actually are in alignment with God's desires. James 4 verse 2 says, When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with the wrong motives, that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. See, when we're in trouble, when things are not going as we planned, I think this is the best time to step back and take a look at our motives. Is what we're praying for out of self-interest 
Or is it out of the interest of others, the good of others, the good of God's plan in this world? So we've seen in verses 1 to 5 that we can have confidence that God will answer us in times of trouble because he cares for his people. But secondly, we can have this confidence because the Lord God will provide victory to his anointed one. In the second part of this psalm, David responds to the people's prayers. He responds with confidence. He responds with the knowledge of how God has acted in the past, and he responds with an understanding of God's promises to him. This gives him confidence that God will again respond. Let me read to you from verse 6. It says, Now this I know. The Lord gives victory to his anointed. He answers him from his heavenly sanctuary with the victorious power of his right hand. Some trust in chariots and horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. They are brought to their knees and fall, but we rise up and stand firm. See, David's confidence here is based on two things. It's based firstly on the confidence that God gives victory to his anointed. David knows this not only because God has taught him, that God has promised that he will grant David victory, but also because of experience. See, time and time again, God goes before David into battle. He gives him success. And this gives David the confidence that God will continue to grant him victory to to his anointed one. But secondly, David's confidence is also based on the absolute power of God. If we look back to verse 2 of the psalm, we see God as pictured as dwelling with his people. And this is really highlighting that special relationship that God has with Israel. But in these verses, God answers from the heavenly sanctuary with the victorious power of his right hand. This is a picture of God that stands above all earthly powers and dominions. It's a picture of God in control of all things. Who can stand against the God of heaven and earth? See, David knows that the nations around him may have bigger armies, more chariots, more horses, but Israel have the Lord God. And no matter the number of soldiers that may stand against them, no nation can stand against the Lord. See, when nations that oppose the Lord and Israel, they will be brought to their knees, they will fall down. But Israel will rise up and stand firm. So in Psalm 20, we see that we can be confident that God will answer us in times of trouble because firstly, God cares for his people, but secondly, because God provides victory through his anointed one. And I just want to spend the rest of our time together today thinking through God's victory and what that actually means for us. Because The way that we understand God's victory is crucial to ensure that we respond rightly to this victory and that we actually don't develop an unhealthy or incorrect view of what it means for God or for us as Christians to be victorious in life. See, Psalm 20 is based on the promises that God had made to David. Let me just read those promises to you from 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 8. This is God speaking. He says, Now then, tell my servant David, this is what the Lord Almighty says. I took you from the pasture and tending the flock and appointed you ruler over my people Israel. I've been with you wherever you have gone and have cut off all your enemies from before you. 
Now I will make your name great, like the names of the greatest men on earth, and I will provide a place for my people Israel and plant them so that they can have a home of their own and no longer be disturbed. Wicked people will no longer will oppress them anymore, will not oppress them anymore, as they did in the beginning and have done since the time I appointed leaders over my people Israel. I will also give you rest from all your enemies. God's promises under David were to establish a place for Israel to live with the God, with their God, in peace, safe from other nations. And the psalm is written as David's reign sees Israel established as that safe and peaceful land, a land and a nation that is blessed by God. But we know as we read through the Old Testament, as we read past David, as we read past Solomon, that despite God fulfilling his promises, despite God providing victory, providing salvation, that Israel again and again turn away from him. They reject his ways, reject relationship with him, preferring to trust in their own strength, in their own horses and chariots, turning to the gods of the other nations. See, Israel's main problem is never with the surrounding nations. It's with themselves. It's their rejection of God and his ways that causes them to stumble and fall. So God judges them, doesn't he? He enables the other nations, Assyria and Babylon, to overrun Israel, to take them into captivity. And eventually we do see a small portion of Israel return to the land. But it's never really theirs. From that point on, they're under the control of other nations. So Israel look for another David. They long for another king who can save them, who can lead them to victory over their enemies. And if we fast forward a few hundred years, we come to the first century and we see a man named Jesus in Galilee proclaiming the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. See, Jesus is claiming to be that long-awaited Messiah, the anointed one, the one who will bring salvation to Israel. But he's not going to do it in the same way as David. Jesus is not going to lift the sword. He's not going to raise an army. And that's because Israel's main problem is not with the nations. It's not the fact that they're now occupied by the Roman Empire. It's actually the fact that their hearts have turned away from God. Friends, it's the same with us. Our, prob- our main problem is not the society that we live in. It's not the media. It's not our government. It's not the opposition we may face day to day. It's the fact that we have turned away from God and want to run lives our, our lives our own way. This is what the Bible refers to as sin. And this is where the real battle is. At its heart, sin is not simply about breaking rules. It's a fractured relationship with God. And the result of that fractured relationship will be toil, will be struggle, and ultimately will be death. And friends, this is the victory that Jesus came to deliver. But how does Jesus do this? How exactly does Jesus deliver this victory? I think Paul, in his letter to the Colossians, explains this really helpfully. Let me read to you from Colossians 2, verse 13. 
It says, when you were dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having cancelled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He's taken it all away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Paul is saying here that the main problem that all people have is sin, that we all reject God's way. We all choose to live lives with ourselves as God. And the result of this sin is death. That is being cut off from God, being cut off from the life that he provides. So just as Israel's main problem was their rejection of God, this is the universal problem that humanity faces. But notice in these verses, God has acted to solve this problem. Just as God acts to deliver David, to give him victory, God has acted to bring us back to life. He's made us alive in Christ. That is, he's moved us from the position of death to the position of life. And he does this by forgiving our sin, by cancelling that debt that stood against us. As we read these verses, the picture here is the picture of a courtroom scene where a charge is brought against the accused party. That's us. And that charge in, the in, in this instance is actually results in the death sentence. Paul is saying that Jesus took those charges that were against us and took them on himself. That is the cost of our sin before God. And what Jesus does is he nails that to the cross. When Jesus dies on the cross, he, the power of, when Jesus, sorry, when Jesus dies on the cross, he disarms all the powers and authorities. That is, on the cross, Jesus takes Satan's power. He takes the power of sin and death and he robs him of that power. See, Jesus, this is because Jesus is the perfect, sinless son of God. So when God um, pours out his wrath on Jesus, it's completely effective. It's absolutely exhausted in Jesus. There's nothing left. And the result is that for those that believe in Jesus, who accept this sacrifice and align themselves with Jesus, have their debt cancelled, have their sin taken away. The result of that is that death no longer has any power over them. God's ultimate victory is the victory over sin and death, and it is achieved through the suffering and death of his own son, who took the punishment that we all deserve. His victory enables us to enter God's kingdom, to live with him forever. And I just want to end our time together by thinking about two implications of this truth for us. And the first one I think that um, this pushes us towards is to pursue God's victory through the denial of ourselves, the service of others and of God. See, Matthew, uh, Jesus says in Matthew chapter 16, verse 24, he says, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross and follow me. The way of the cross was Jesus' path to victory, and this should be ours as well. When those around us criticise us, when we are ostracised for our beliefs, when we are ridiculed, when we are mocked, 
The way of Christ is actually to love those who do that to us, to serve them, not because we are weak, not because we're incapable, but exactly because our God is strong. Our God is victorious. He has already landed the fatal blow to Satan and evil when Jesus died on the cross. Now, I don't pretend for a minute that that's an easy thing to do. At times it may be painful. It may be humiliating. But I think we need to remember that we have the power of the Holy Spirit to help us. And we actually have a Saviour who has already triumphed. And friends, this should be our model of leadership in our church. If you're leading in any capacity at this church, I think we're called to be a servant, to deny ourselves, not to lord it over those who we have responsibility for, but to lovingly encourage and serve them. But the second thing I think this pushes us towards is to pursue and celebrate God's victory over sin and death. Friends, Nothing should bring us more joy and celebration than we see pe- when we see people's lives transformed by God's victory. When we see people move from death to life, that is the reason to lift our banners and shout for joy at what God is doing in their lives. I think um, that's one of the reasons why witnessing baptisms is one of the most wonderful and joyful things that we do at church. Because when we witness a baptism, we are actually witnessing symbolically God moving that person from death to life, being washed clean from their sin and rising again to new life in Jesus. But it also means that we should work hard to kill the sin that remains in our own lives and then to celebrate. Because every time we reject temptation, every time we choose to follow God's way, we're actually demonstrating God's victory over sin. What better reason to celebrate is there than to celebrate God working in us to change us to be more like Jesus? Friends, in summary, Psalm 20 has shown us that we can have confidence that God will answer when we call on him because he cares for his people. But secondly, because God has promised victory through his anointed one. And we have seen that God's ultimate victory was the victory over sin and death. The victory that is achieved by Jesus when he died on the cross and rose again to new life. Let's celebrate and pursue this victory in our own lives and in the lives of those around us. Uh, Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you love us dearly. Father, we thank you that you sent your own son, Jesus, who died on the cross to deliver victory over sin and death. Father, we thank you that you raised him to life, that he is seated at your right hand where he will judge in glory. Father, as your people, we pray that you would help us follow Jesus. We pray that you would help us deny ourselves to serve you and to serve others. And we pray that we would be able to put to death all sin that remains in our lives. We pray that we would joyfully celebrate your victory over sin and death. Amen.